All right, John 10, verse number 22 and 23, set the stage for us. We're going to go down through verse uh, 30 or 31 today, uh, but let's look at these first couple verses. It says that it was at Jerusalem, the Feast of Dedication, it was winter, and Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. So this is important. This is kind of a shift in the narrative here because since the beginning of chapter 7, we've been talking about Jesus at the Feast of Tabernacles. Now it's the Feast of Dedication. So this is three months later. Uh, John says that it's winter. Uh, that's, this is when the Feast of Dedication takes place. It happens in December of every year. Uh, the, the Feast of Dedication is also known as the Festival of Lights. It's most commonly known as Hanukkah. Uh, some of you thought that Hanukkah was Jewish Christmas, but it's not. It's been around before Christmas was. And, uh, and it's the, the celebration of the rededicating of the second temple. Uh, they're actually in the second century after Antiochus Epiphanes, the Syrian despot, had taken over and had desecrated the temple. And I don't mean he tore it down. I mean that he set up pagan altars. He, he, he was as, as wicked a ruler as you'll probably ever meet or read about. Uh, he, he was there for about three or four years. Uh, he killed 80,000 Jews in the process, and he sold 80,000 Jews into slavery. And as you can imagine, this caused the Jewish people to, to be up in arms, and they started to participate in basically guerrilla warfare against this ruler. And over the course of time, their, their militia grew, and it was led by a man named Judas Maccabeus. Uh, you can read about this in First and Second Maccabees, which are actually Jewish history books that are kind of in the apocryphal period or the intertestamental period, which are all big words to say the period of time between the Old Testament ending and the New Testament beginning. There's a 450-year gap there. So about 167 BC, Antiochus Epiphany comes on. They start to lead these revolts, and it takes about three years, and they eventually overthrow him and reclaim the temple mountain, reclaim the temple, and they throw out all of the pagan stuff, and they decide that they're going to now dedicate it to the Lord. And this obviously was a celebration because they now have the temple again, but it was also a celebration because of how wicked Antiochus was. It, w- it was a capital offense for a Jew during that time period to own any portion of the scripture. You had a verse, you had a psalm, you had a book, it didn't matter. It was, it was a capital offense, you'd be put to death. Women who circumcised their, their young men would be put to death by crucifixion and they would hang the babies around their necks. So, I mean, this, this was a messed up guy. So you can imagine when they reclaim this, I mean, that is, it's a celebration. And they celebrated the rededicating. They worshiped for eight days straight. And they said, from here on out, we're going to commemorate this. We're going to remember this. And we're going to have an eight-day celebration. It's often commemorate, commemorated by uh, the, the lighting of lights, you know, in a temple or in a home. And known as Hanukkah today still continues on. And this is that festival that Jesus is at. It's in December, so we're told it's winter, okay? So uh, there in Jerusalem, 50 degrees-ish during the, the winter months. Uh, rains a lot more than it does in the summer months, very similar to here. And here Jesus, it says, is there in the wintertime, and he's in Solomon's porch. So he's not in the open courtyard. Uh, I imagine it's raining on this day. I imagine it's kind of like a typical Pittsburgh uh, December day, kind of gray and dark, maybe drizzling or something. But he's in the porch to get out from under the elements, and there people come to him with a question. And here it is. Then came the Jews round about him and said unto him, How long dost thou make us doubt? If thou be the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus, don't be squishy at all with us. 
unambiguously tell us, are you the Christ or are you not? Now, Jesus knew their hearts, and he knows that these people are not coming saying, tell us if you're the Christ, because if you say yes, we'll fall down and we'll worship you, and you're the best ever. They're coming wanting a very clear-cut statement so they can say, aha, ammunition for us. He said it, the end, crucify him, or be done with him, or stone him, or kill him. This is ultimately what will happen the morning of Jesus' crucifixion, that as they beat him and interrogate him, that finally he says unequivocally to this audience. Now, he would say unequivocally to his disciples or to the Samaritan woman and other places, but he knew this audience and he knew what they were after. And he says that morning of his crucifixion that he is the Son of Man, unequivocally. They say, "We, we don't need anything else. We don't need any other testimony. We can put him to death now. So they're looking, they have an axe to grind, they're looking to put him to death, and they say, we want an unequivocal statement, Jesus, who are you? Which is a very, very important question. This question John has answered over and over and over again in his gospel, but this is important for us because the world at large, there's a lot of debate about who Jesus is. Buddhists say that Jesus was an enlightened man. Christian scientists say that Jesus is not God. And I'm not sure how Christian scientists got their name because they're not Christian or scientists, uh, but they're both together in a name. It's like grape nuts, right? It's not grapes or nuts. They're just both together. (laughs) Hinduism says that Jesus is a wise man, but he's not God. Islam says that Jesus, he was a prophet, but he's an inferior prophet because Muhammad was superior Fidel Castro said, I never saw a contradiction between the ideas that sustained me and Jesus. A.K.A. Jesus was a great communist. Hitler said, how terrific was his fight, Jesus' fight, against the Jewish poison. A.K.A. Jesus was a good Nazi. Gandhi said that Jesus is, he's unique, but he's not divine. He's a spiritual man, and he's a wise man, but not divine. Jehovah's Witnesses say that Jesus was a created being. Mormons say he was the half-brother of Lucifer. Who do we believe? (laughs) Who do you listen to? There's, There's all of these divergent opinions and speculation about who Jesus is. And I dare say that this passage is important because we can just ask Jesus who he is, right? This is them coming to Jesus and saying, Jesus, why don't you tell us who you are? And that's probably the most important opinion of all is who did Jesus say that he was? So he's going to say who he is and we're going to understand that as we, as we walk through this. It's the question that, that really frames this, this entire narrative. Verse 25, Jesus says, I told you and you believed not. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But ye believe not, because you're not of my sheep, as I said unto you. Here's what Jesus says. Hasn't my teaching struck a chord with you? Don't, don't my miracles mean anything to you? I mean, I, I restored the paralyzed man. I mean, he could walk. He was lame for 30 plus years, and now he can walk. The healing of the man that was blind from his birth. Does, does that not mean anything to you? Does that not speak volumes on my behalf? No, not really, because you're not my sheep. Verse 27, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. He said the exact same thing last week. We looked at that. And it's not just that his sheep hear his voice and know him and follow him. It's the opposite, that those who are not his sheep do not know him, do not hear his voice, and do not follow him. Okay, pastor, I get it. You know, you're not not my sheep. Not your fault. You can't hear, you know, you get a hall pass. No. Jesus is not excusing them. He's indicting them. He's indicting them and saying, this is a problem. This is a problem that you, you, I've told you, you've seen what's going on here. Verse 28, 
I give unto them my sheep eternal life. They shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. Now let's just hit the brakes for a little while and park it there for a minute, okay? That's gold. That's gold. Jesus already told us, we looked at it last week in verse 10 of John 10, that he gives his sheep life and he gives to his sheep abundant life. Now he says that this abundant life that I have to offer is it's from me and it's eternal life. This is one of the strongest verses in all of the Bible affirming the believer's assurance of life in heaven. That the outcome of the sheep knowing Jesus and the outcome of the sheep having eternal life is that they will never perish. Now I'll remind you, we looked last week that there's a shepherd and sheep and the relationship there is that Jesus, the good shepherd, takes care of everything. That's what a shepherd is. He's not a partner to the sheep. He's someone who takes care of it all. He says, don't think about a thing. I have it all under control. Don't worry. Akuna matata. Like I got this. And part of that, don't worry, I have it under control shepherding is the gift of eternal life and the guarantee that the sheep will never perish. Now, what is that referring to when Jesus says, my sheep will never perish? It's referring to death. And most specifically, referring to spiritual death, commonly referred to in the Bible as the second death or even hell or the lake of fire. Now, Let's just back up a minute and answer the question, what's death? You could describe it a lot of ways, but I think the best definition is death is the traumatic separation of the soul from the body. It's taking two things that we feel should be whole and ripping them apart and saying that the soul is now separate from the body. Spiritual death is very similar to physical death in that spiritual death is the separation of the soul from God who is the sustainer and the creator of the soul. And if you read the Bible from cover to cover, you see very plainly that spiritual death is a pain and a misery and a despair so great that the physical death that we experience on this earth and that we fear on this earth is just a hint of what spiritual death will be. And that physical death is really nothing to be compared to what spiritual death, being separated, your soul from God, is. Now, frankly, that's as scary as all get out. And that's completely divergent from what the secular society or even Eastern mysticism will tell you. Because they will tell you that death is just the next step in the process. It's just a natural thing, just as natural as giving birth and just as natural as you breathing and just as natural as you eating and just as natural as you growing is the natural process of you dying one day. It's just the next stage. It's supposed to happen. There's nothing to fear. Yet you know, and I know, and so does everyone else who's walked this planet, that that does not correspond to reality. And it doesn't correspond to what the scriptures teach us. Because the scriptures teach us that death is an executioner and that death is an enemy. And when you've been in the presence of death, when you're around someone who is in their last moments and they pass, when, you, when you're around someone who's on their deathbed, you know that an enemy was present. You know that there was nothing at all natural about that. And your intuition is right. It's spot on when you feel that death is a perversion and death is a monstrosity that shouldn't be. The Bible tells you that, and your gut tells you that. And the question is, how do we cope with that? How do we deal with that? And we are told plainly in Scripture 
that the only way to defang death and to not be scared of death is not to act like it's natural and just, oh, there's nothing to fear. The only way is actually through Jesus. That Jesus is the only one in all of human history who was a good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep is what we looked at last week. That's the verbiage used. What does that mean? It means that Jesus laid down his own life, was in control of it. Jesus was not the victim of death. Him dying or not was of his own choosing and of his own power and that death did not have a claim on him like it has on us and that death did not actually come to Christ, but Christ came to death. John Murray put it this way. He said that when Jesus went to the cross, he put one hand on his body and one hand on his soul and he tore himself asunder for us. That he willingly chose to do that in our place. Walked into the execution room and experienced death as we would. Absorbed it for us so that we do not have to. And that spiritual death is now an alternative. It's something that we do not have to experience. And that he offers his sheep eternal or everlasting life. And that they do not have to perish. Jesus saying... I, the good shepherd, will take care of this for you. I will remove this. I will take it out of the way. You do not have to worry about it. You can have heaven and not hell. You can have eternal life and not perish. You don't have to worry about your soul being separated from your body. You can know that when that day comes, your soul is going to upgrade to the presence of the Lord and that one day I will reunite your soul with your body in the resurrection is what the grand total of the gospel tells us. That this is not something that you have to fear. Not because death isn't scary, but because Jesus ripped the fangs out of it and it's no longer for you if you're his sheep. You have everlasting life, will not perish. Now that's awesome. That's awesome. And it's appropriate to ask at this point, does death scare you, right? Is that something that gets you worked up? It would be appropriate to ask at this point, do you know Jesus as your savior? Because if you know him, you don't have to be scared of death. You can know that I will die physically, but you can also know that my soul will be with God in heaven. And do you know that? I hope you do. Because Jesus wants his sheep to know that. If you don't know that, you can believe on him today. That was kind of the impetus for me coming to faith. Was someone posing the question to me, do you know what would happen to you if you die? Do you know for sure you go to heaven? And do you have doubt about that? My answer was, I don't know. I have doubt about that. They said, let me show you how you can have peace of mind on that. Jesus doesn't want you to worry about that. Jesus offers you eternal life. And then he says, at the end of the verse, no man can pluck them out of my hand. Trust your life to me, the good shepherd. Nobody will tear you away from me. There's, There's tremendous security in Jesus. This is exactly what Jesus said in John 6. He said it in different verbiage, but he said the same thing in John 6, right after he had fed the 5,000. The next day they came to him, Jesus, give us more bread. Give us, we want a meal ticket. I don't got bread for you, but I got the bread of life. You need to eat of me. And he told them, this is the Father's will which sent me, that all of which he's given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again the last day. This is the will of him that sent me. Everyone that seeth the Son and believeth on him, may have everlasting life. I will raise him up at the last day. You have everlasting life. I'll raise you up. I will lose nothing. This is a done deal. That's tremendous security. Now that is pure gold and completely good enough. 
But he gives us a, a little cherry on top here, verse number 29. Big cherry on top, actually. My father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my father's hand. So he goes a step further. The father who gave me the sheep, the greatest, the biggest, the strongest, greater than all, no one's getting the sheep out of his hand. Now the hand of God is an amazing concept in Scripture. If you think that Fort Knox is secure, it does not hold a candle to the hand of God. I talked about this briefly last Sunday night because we were looking at at Psalm chapter number 8, where verse 3 of Psalm 8 says, When I considered thy heavens the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained. And if you were here Sunday night, you're going to have to bear with a little bit of me reiterating something for two minutes. But most of you weren't, so it'll be good. The Bible tells us that you take the cosmos, the moon and the stars, the sun, all of that, and it puts it in terms of it's, it's the work of God's fingers. It's, his, it's a model. It's a plaything. It's Plato in his hands. It's, it's something small. Now, if we, we don't know that much about the cosmos because it's really big and really vast and we haven't been there. But we, we know a little bit about our galaxy. If you scaled our galaxy to size, our galaxy, let's say it was the size of North America. It's pretty big. Our solar system, the planets that revolve around our sun, would be the size of a coffee cup. And the Earth is just a little speck in the coffee cup. That's our galaxy. And there are like 100 billion galaxies or more. Like there's, you know, boatloads of galaxies. And the Bible says that all of that is the work of the fingers of God. It's, it's, it's his little thing that he's playing with. Isaiah puts it in these terms. He says that, that who hath measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Who hath meted out the heaven with a span? What's that mean? It says you, you drain all the oceans and take all, all of the water and measure it. It's just in the hollow of his hand. It's a drop in the hand of God. He says the span of his hands meted the heavens or measured the heavens. Put all the cosmos right there in between the hand of God. What are they saying when they say that? They're trying to say there is a big, huge, majestic, glorious, powerful God, and you can't even begin to comprehend what's in his pinky, much less his hand. That, that, that's a big God. And Jesus says that we, the sheep, are in his hands, but then he says we're in the Father's hands. Now what that means is, Ain't nobody cracking the safe on the hand of God. He's trying to help you see with great certainty that you are secure if you know Jesus as Savior. Nobody's going to thieve him or rob him. The devil is a wicked, powerful creature, but he has never one time sent God a ransom note for one of his kids. He can't do it. It's impossible. He's trying to get you to see that you're not going to outpower him. If the Hulk was real, you could hire him to Hulk smash God's hand all day, and it wouldn't matter. You can't, you can't get past that. You're not breaking into that. All the forces of hell can be leveled against the hand of God, but it doesn't make a dent in it. It doesn't matter. What he's trying to say is, you're not going to scam him. You're not getting in there. You're secure. God's never going to send you an email that says, oh, whoops, somebody hacked my salvation database. You're in jeopardy now. It's not going to happen with God. If you are his sheep, you are secure. He's trying to help you to see that if you know him as Savior, then you can pill your head in peace. You can have security. You don't have to wonder all the time, is there life after death or is, is there not? Yes, there is. 
You don't have to wonder, well, is, is that, is that going to be in heaven or is that not going to be in heaven? Well, if I'm the sheep, then it's heaven. Now listen, you can lose a lot of things in this life. You can lose your phone, you can lose your car keys, you can lose your mind, you can lose your health, you can lose your kids even. But you can't lose your salvation. And the reason you can't lose your salvation is because to put it in the terms or ask the question, can I lose my salvation, is actually an improper question. The real question that you need to ask is, can God lose one of his children? And the answer to that is no, he cannot. It's not really about you. It's about if you're his sheep, I got you. This is, I just, I'm just going to read this again, okay? Let's just read these two verses and let this sink in. Because this is just, this is dynamite. I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them, he's greater than all. No man's able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. That's saying you're secure. You're secure. Now, this is an indirect claim to deity. We're going to see a very clear claim to deity in just a minute. And Jesus saying that, that he's God. But this is Jesus telling us what he had told us in, in John 5, that there's no daylight and there's no separation between him and the Father. That you're in his hand and you're in the Father's hand. And that makes complete sense because what Jesus does, the Father does. And what the Father does, Jesus does. And they're in complete sync and complete harmony with one another. He's been telling them that over and over. So this is an indirect way of him saying, yeah, the task of God to secure eternal life for people or to give them entrance to heaven or not. And that, that judgment, like that judgment's far above my pay grade. But Jesus is saying, no, that's mine. And that's the Father's. We're one. We're in sync here that, that we go together in that. And this, that's deeply important. This, this is far more than a theological concept to wrap your head around so that you can know something about the Bible. It is deeply important for your day-to-day walk with Jesus that you know you're secure. Back in 1937, they finished construction on the Golden Gate Bridge. Raise of hands, how many of you have seen the Golden Gate Bridge in person? All right, quite a few of you. Very famous landmark, you know, in the United States, there in, in the Bay of San Francisco. Uh, my wife and I lived out that way for years, and we made it to San Fran a, a couple times a year. And it, the Golden Gate Bridge was completed in two phases. Phase number one was without a safety net. Phase number two was with a safety net. Phase one, work moved incredibly slow, and 23 men fell to their death into the bay. And as you can imagine, that spread like wildfire throughout the other workers, that their lives were on the line, and eventually, as 23 men died, they decided they weren't working no more. They decided, I don't care how much you pay me, it's not worth it, and work came to a halt. And the $77 million project of building the Golden Gate Bridge all of a sudden turned into a $77,100,000 project because they had to spend a mere measly $100,000 to build a safety net under the entire thing so that if someone fell, they were caught. When work resumed, they said that it was at least, if not significantly greater, 25% faster in their work and that no one actually died. And what they found to be true was those workers moved through their day-to-day tasks more swiftly and more powerfully and with greater clarity of mind because they did not have impending death and destruction awaiting them. 
They no longer thought one slip up and all of a sudden I'm a goner and this is toast. Now they had peace and they had confidence and they felt safe. So they were able to do what they were supposed to be doing with ease and with confidence. Now the same thing is true for your life in Jesus. If you go through your day-to-day life constantly wondering, is it good enough? What if I slip up today? Am I going to lose salvation today? Am I, am I good enough for heaven now? Is God keeping the running list? I hope you didn't notice that, but well, maybe my good outweighs that. If that's the way you approach your Christian life, you, you, it, it'll be so frustrating It will not be anything close to what God wants it to be. God wants it to be a check it off the list, know that it's done. It's not up to you, it's up to me. I'm the good shepherd. Don't worry about it. It's in my hands, it's under my control. I got this. Just rest at ease, have peace of mind. How much is that peace of mind worth? That's priceless. To know that I don't have to worry about that any longer and I don't have to work for my salvation and wonder if I'm going to get it. I can work from my salvation. I can take that peace and that over, I mean, that makes my heart joy. That makes me think that is an awesome God. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your grace. Now work from that. Now start to go through your day and your week and your month and and live life for Jesus without that in the back of your head nagging you all the time. Some of you know what it's like to have someone that you can trust implicitly with something. If I give them this task, my spouse or, or my, my coworker or my assistant or whatever, that I can know that it's done. Stacy is in the room. Stacy's that, that lady for me. My wife is definitely that way for me. That I know if, if I give them a task, I don't have to go check up on it. I, I can just cross it off, not worry about it anymore. It's done. It's over. It's, it's goodbye. And when it comes to your heaven, hell, that question, you got to believe in Jesus and you got to wrestle, you got to wrestle it out. Before you come to faith, once you come to faith, you can know, cross off the list. It's done. It's over. You don't have to worry about it any longer. It's, it's secure in his hand. And you need that for your life every single day. Now, if that wasn't direct enough, verse 28, verse 29, Jesus is going to get even more direct. Verse 30, I and my father are one. And that's what 28 and 29 was meant to teach us. That what I'm doing, the Father's doing. We're in sync. We're one. But a very, very clear verse on the deity of Jesus. Few verses are as precise and pointed as this one in Scripture. That we are perfectly one in action. We are in complete harmony. As Jesus said in John 5. The Son can do nothing of Himself but what He seeth the Father do. For what things soever He doeth, these also doeth the Son likewise. That there is complete sync in our lives. In this statement on who Jesus was, that He would provide safety for His sheep, that He would care for their everlasting life, that He would give them eternal life, not perishing. The safety that they wanted, that they needed, that we want, that we need, right? This is why we turn on the nightlights for the kids, because they want to feel safe. It's why we lock our doors, because we want to feel safe. It's why we go to great lengths to secure our social security number, because we want to be safe. I give that to them, and know that me and the Father are one. And they hear these words, and they know what Jesus said. They know very clearly who Jesus said that he was, because in verse 31, then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Now, I'm going to leave it there this week. I'm going to leave it on a little bit of a cliffhanger. If you don't know the life of Jesus, 
you'll wonder what happened, but you probably do know that he didn't get stoned. But I encourage you this week, because we're, we're going to look at it next week, but I encourage you to read through the end of the chapter and see Jesus' response, because this is a moment. I just want to leave it right there. This is a moment where Jesus is facing the firing squad with the, the guns loaded and the safety off and the finger on the trigger. This is them picking up stones surrounding him. You have just, and they'll, they'll tell you why. If you read the, the section, they'll say, blasphemy. You made yourself equal with God. You said you were God. And they pick up stones ready to stone him. And Jesus is going to give them a response that is so profound and simple all at the same time and so marvelous that I, I want you to try to study it on your own. I'll walk through it with you next week. But here they are knowing clearly, Jesus, tell us clearly, unambiguously, who are you? Guys, haven't I told you? You didn't believe me? Well, my works, they didn't show you who I was? You think normal guys do this? Let me tell you about me. My sheep know, my, know me, hear my voice, they follow me. I'll tell you what, I'm giving them eternal life. <laughs> They're not going to perish. I got them in my hand. My father gave them to me. He's greater than everybody. And, and he got some in his hand. Me and the father were one. Oh, we see who you are. Jesus says he's God. Now here's, here's what I want you to, to think about. Are you a sheep? That's, that's the real question that the text begs. Do you know him? Do you hear his voice? Do you follow him? If you do, then these words offer peace and security and a calmness for your soul that you can't buy anywhere else. If you don't, the heavenly shepherd wants you to be under his protection and he's inviting you today to come to him, to respond to him, to say yes to him. And to say, you be my good shepherd. And if you'll do that, he'll put you in the fold. He will take you in. And I hope that as you go through tomorrow and you go to work and you go through the rest of the week and you hit next weekend and honestly next month and the rest of your life, I pray that these words will burn into your heart and will even fall from your lips very often. And that's the words of verse 28. I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. 